singularity. In the last century, an old Indian man told me a secret. The kind from South, South Dakota, not Delhi. He told me this. He told me myth can maintain the health of the world. But when we forget these special stories, everything goes a little crazy. He told me I had to keep remembering. He said the old stories released a kind of oxygen. People would gather around the tales and that I had to make a life from this. I never saw him again, but I did what he said. My name is Nicola and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can show your support by either writing a brief review on iTunes or by simply becoming a patron via interviewthefuture.com. Today, my guest on the show is Dr. Martin Shaw. Martin is an award-winning writer who lives in Dartmoor in the far, far west of Britain. His most recent book, Bart's Cow, was selected as a book of the day by The Guardian and described as rich and transgressive by the Sunday Times. A deeply respected oral storyteller, Martin Shaw created the oral tradition and mythic life courses at Stanford University. Dr. Shaw is director at the West Country School of Myth and a longtime wilderness rites of passage guide. In short, Dr. Martin Shaw is the best oral storyteller in the English language that I know of. <laughs> so, welcome to Singularity FM, Martin. Thank you, Nicola. It's lovely to be here. Fantastic. So, Martin, did you really just follow the advice from this old Indian man, or is there more to your story of how and why you became a storyteller? There is bound to be more to why I became a storyteller, but it's a true, that quote that you just gave, the name of the man was Wallace Black Elk. Wallace Black Elk. No one's ever asked me in all the interviews about Bard's Gone. No one's ever asked me about that moment. He was a real person. He was a Lakota Sioux medicine man. And he was the grandson of a man called Nicholas Black Elk, whose prophecies were put in a book about, well, well over a hundred years ago called Black Elk Speaks. Uh, which is a very important book. And that advice that he gave me was true. Uh, and to the best of my work over the last 28 years or so since that encounter, I've done my best. But as you were hinting at, of course, there's more to the story than just that one moment. That's that's phenomenal. So why don't you unpack this, this a little bit for us and, and give us a little more of the story? Sure. Okay. Well, I was born in the at the very beginning of the 1970s, 1971, so I do regard myself as a child of the previous century. Um, I grew up in a house where we didn't have a television, uh, so there was a lot of attention on stories, on books, on words, on ideas, on art. Um, the back of the house led off into... Uh, a reasonably sized forest. And so my imagination in Russian fairy tales and folk stories with the woods behind the house and with these stories ringing in my ears and fair, very little television to distract me, apart from when I went to see my grandmother who did have a TV, uh, that was what got me started. 
but it would have been only in my 20s, you know, many years later, that I began to look at the stories I loved as a child as having a lot more sophistication to them than I understood when I was six. You hear a story when you're six as you're meant to hear it, but then if it's a story with lots of depth, you hear it in a different way when you're 26, 56, 86. So theoretically, the stories deepen with you if they're really of great quality. So I decided, I suppose, in my, it would have been in my mid-20s, I'm in my early 50s now, that my life was going to be an intense study of mythology and story and also the telling of them, the oral transmission, the actual storytelling of them. But between me and you, Nicola, I didn't really know anybody that did that. I didn't really know it. I didn't really know it existed. I knew lovely old ladies in libraries that read stories, <laughs> but told them, just told them, I'd very rarely seen that. Although I suppose I'd seen it in my my dad doing it quite naturally in the house. So over the last 26, 27 years, um, what began as a completely private passion with no sense whatsoever of what I could kind of do with it other than love it, it's grown into this thing now, whereas I'm talking to you, I'm just finishing my 18th book. I've wow. had a school of myth for 20 years. I was lucky enough to teach at Stanford, as you mentioned. I have been across Canada, which is, I think, where we met, yes. uh, across America many times, across England. And I'm just tremendously grateful for this unexpected life. Yeah, so you're one of the very few storytellers or modern-day bards, maybe is a better word, because bards made made a living by telling a story, right? Yeah. And you're one of those very few people who actually does this today in the 21st century, which is yeah. almost unique. Yes. Now, that's a good point. Uh, the, the question of money is interesting. Most storytelling throughout history has not been monetized in any way. And I don't think it's meant to be. It's, it's beyond that, you know. Um, you have storytellers, often even in a family, there's someone who's particularly gifted at telling a story and you'll gather around the fire and the story gets told. And then you occasionally get these characters called raconteurs or bards who have somehow taken their art form to such a sophisticated degree that their reputation spreads and people say, well, look, actually, I'd like to have that guy at my wedding or maybe that woman could come to the... Uh, could come and talk to the children. And the only thing I knew when I started was that I wasn't primarily going to be focused on working for children. It was going to be for adults. And it was going to involve both the telling of the story, but also the deeper rummaging, exegesis, explorations of how could the Odyssey, how could the Odyssey resonate with the lives that we're having in, you know, 2023. Wow. And and the amazing thing is that it does, actually, so much, actually. Uh, but but maybe here we should jump in just for a second and define our terms. So what is story, Martin? 
how do you define story and why should my audience who are mostly tech people IT professionals many of them in the big companies like Google and Facebook uh, Amazon etc uh, many of them programmers many of them with engineering degree hard science people people who uh, work for a living as many of them would say and who produce tangible stuff at the end of the day why should any of them bother listening to us or anyone for that matter about story why should they care the reason that they would probably care is that i would imagine in all the jobs you've just described they all involve imagination they all involve imagination and what you're getting with ancient stories especially is this strange issue that whenever human beings start to imagine they tend to imagine within stories they create stories we are a story fed culture if you want to know about how the people tick that you're selling your stuff to you need to know the stories that make them chime that open their heart up that deepen deepen them so i mean there's also the disclaimer of course we're saying if you don't if you don't feel a call towards it well just ignore it but for many of us especially people that are not necessarily traditionally religious uh myth and story just has a kind of a, a depth a sense of ancestral connection uh it's a kind of anchor in a time where we are i described it recently i said i feel like we live with a tyranny of choice we have so many options all the time it's almost paralyzing whereas when i became an oral storyteller i realized there was a limit to how much my imagination could actually retain and so to learn say for example which i'm doing at the moment or relearning something as big as homer's odyssey that takes me two and a half days to tell that means a degree of sacrifice it means i don't sit up every night watching netflix it means that i have a kind of martial discipline so i get up in the morning and i start to work with the images and i don't learn the story through i don't learn the story through a script i learn it through pictures and i just look at the pictures in a row and i start to describe them and over time that becomes the story uh so that's what i would say anybody interested in the imagination and interested in human beings is probably going to find some element of story and myth that would appeal to them yeah and to be honest uh, i'm the perfect example of that i am not religious at all uh even though i come from a kind of a sort of a uh diametrically opposed family uh situation i mean my father's family were all communists uh and my and um they kind of became more prominent after communism came to bulgaria uh but my father's family uh i mean my mother's family were very religious orthodox christians um and my grandfather was a small business owner so he lost everything when communism came and so that kind of created these two very diametrically opposed points of view in the family and there was kind of constant friction because the communists were making fun 
uh, of the religious beliefs of, of the Orthodox people and so on. Yeah. So I kind of grew up within that situation. But what appealed to me most when I was growing up, and I was probably grade one when I picked up the book, was the ancient Greek myths and legends. And this thing that I read and reread a number of times literally blew my mind. It was so magical, so unbelievable. And of course, even before that, my mom would read me uh, all kinds of French and, and uh, Western fairy tales, and she would do all the voices and everything. And, and I was totally entranced when I was a child. So, so that kind of was my first exposure to story. And now I realize that I am a keynote speaker. That's how I make my living with it. And in fact, one day I was blown away by the realization that all I do is I tell technology stories. Right. And that took me to a whole other level of making my living because my technology work in the last 15 or 20 years since I've been dealing with my podcast and my blog has been literally bringing ethics into the conversation of technology because my background is ancient Greek and Roman philosophy. And so I realized that all that I'm doing, in fact, is bringing the story of Socrates, the Socratic me method of dialectical investigation, asking questions. That's what I do when I do these podcasts. And then when I do my keynotes, I bring all the ancient stories of Epictetus and Socrates and this and that and the other into the modern world and connect them to the modern stories. And that's how I kind of figured out I make a living, which is strange, mind-blowing realization. Yeah. Well, that's it. You are, you, one of the things I wanted to say was that storytelling is a very broad word. And when people invite me to talk about stories, I usually have to specify and say, I am an oral storyteller working with traditional stories. But that doesn't mean there aren't other kinds of storytellers. I'm just this very particular, uh, rather antique version. Well, you're the most unique version because you're the only person I know of who can do the Odyssey kind of, by, I don't want to say by heart, but sort of impromptu. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I don't know of anyone else who can do that nowadays, to be honest. That's no. a lost skill and lost tradition, except for you, maybe. There, there would be a few of us. There would be a few of us, but they're few and far between. And uh, with all the wonders of technology that we have, sadly, I notice that as my relationship with my phone and my computer continues, my capacity to remember like this gets diminished. It gets diminished. And... Whereas five years ago, I would just jump into a story and be completely submerged in it. Now, every 15 minutes, there's the impulse to check my phone. Every, we all understand this. We all understand wow. this. Yeah. So in a way, it's only when I'm on stage am I completely freed from that sort of digital world. Uh, but luckily, luckily, most of my life I've lived without it. So I had the concentration levels established to be able to work in this very ancient fashion. Yeah, I feel exactly the same way like you when I'm on stage. It's kind of liberating in a way. Yeah. And I suffer from the same kind of urge to check my tech all the time too, which is utterly terrible. And um, uh, but, but let me ask you this though. Um, 
can technology, I mean, can story really heal the world as that wise old Lakota Indian told you? And if so, how? And maybe we should even go back a little bit before that and, and reiterate what's the definition of story, because I think we kind of didn't get to that part. What is the definition of a story? Well, I'd say probably let's change the word to myth, not story, because story is so broad. A myth is what is sometimes described as a beautiful lie that tells a deeper truth or a truth that works without the use of facts, something like that, because mm -hmm. you just recognize instantly that you're encountering what the Mexicans call the river beneath the river. You've encountered a kind of intelligence in these old stories that is more than a newspaper report. It's more than a newspaper report. So I think a real myth or story is something that has the quality of it never happened and it happens every day. You know, it, it's a sort of quintessential, essential truth. Um, also, for me, I have a, an ecological interest in stories. And people like Wallace Black Elk would never have said that a story's origin point was just the intelligence of a human being. It would say, no, 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 the, the person that first heard this story went walkabout for a few days and slept by a river and prayed to a mountain. And then that mountain or that river started to gossip to them started to whisper to them, started to nudge them. And through a kind of conversation with the earth itself, a story was born. That's exciting to me. And so that was the kind of thing. And I lived for four years in a tent without a computer, without a phone, without anything. I lived in a tent for four years. And that was the beginning of my apprenticeship. That was part of how I built up the mental discipline, the imaginative discipline, actually, to do what I'm doing now. That's that's absolutely mind-blowing. I, I was going to ask you about that a little bit later, but let me ask you here. Does living in a tent mean you were homeless or no. what was kind of the situation? Of no, you, it uh, wasn't. The context. The context is I remembered what Wallace Black Elk had said to me. You know, you, you need to really learn these stories. You need to have a really strong relationship with the, out, with the outdoors, with, with nature, with wilderness. And no, I'd been living in, you know, farmhouses, things like that. And the opportunity just came up. When I say tent, it was a beautiful tent. It was a big black Mongolian yurt. And wow. so it wasn't just a, like a tent on the side of a road. I wasn't in an impoverished or desperate situation. Um, I just knew that there was a place where I could put this tent, where there was a bit of space overlooking a valley. And that was how that began. It was it was also a stage in my life in my late 20s when I was still young and unencumbered enough to do it. You know, when I came out of that situation, I almost immediately had a child. Wow. So <laughs> my like one one last moment where I could kind of just be completely anonymous. I sort of disappeared for four years. I had friends, you know, they came to visit me and things like that, but it was at the time, it didn't seem very remarkable. But when I look back on it now, a quarter of a century later, uh, it has, I, I see it in a different way. I'm very grateful for that experience. 
I think so. It's totally unique. And four years is a long time. It's a very formative, long period of time. So going back to the claim of whether or how myth yeah. can heal the world. So, so first of all, does our world need healing? And secondly, how does myth do that? Well, let's have a think about that. Does the world need healing? Yes, certainly it does. Uh, you only have to look at the kind of suicide pact we seem to have got ourselves in with, uh, you know, climate emergency, for example. Uh, you only have to look at the fact that we can't seem to stay, stay married anymore. Uh, we There's any number of things, once you start to look around you, that shows you that this is a world in, you know, tremendous conflict. Now, obviously, you were saying earlier on that you're not a religious person. But for people that are religious, you know, for many different cultures and faiths, they say this, what we're left with is a fallen imprint of something that once worked much better. But we have fallen so much out of relationship with the creator of this place. We're now kind of in a world of shadows and mist, really. Now, myths also refer to things like that. They refer to, you know, the time before time, the time underneath time, the time before time was digital and strapped to your wrist, you know, as a watch, as another kind of time. And when you were telling a story, a really deep story, you fall out of that part of you that's checking your emails and looking at the clock and wondering about the car and filled with ambition, you fall into a, a, a much deeper state. So for me, a, a phrase like saving the world is too grand, it's too big. But in terms of regulating the condition of a person, can you actually tenderize the heart of a person? Could they be so moved by a story that they make different and better decisions about their life and more importantly, how they treat other people? Yes, that is how stories work. Every culture, before they were literate, collected the things that really mattered and codified them in stories and passed them down. All the secrets, all the mysteries, all the ways about how to live, how to encounter suffering, how to be how heroic, how to how to know what to defend. All of those things were in stories. Yeah, uh, primatologists uh, say that social grooming or mutual grooming acts as the social glue among you know apes. So is story the social glue among humans, the social glue of our civilization? And is that social glue then now literally coming apart and therefore the vacuum, therefore the chaos, therefore the kind of directionless and the bickering and all the fighting and all the conflict that you are talking about? Well, I think the social glue probably existed up until about maybe 50 or 60 years ago. But now, of course, we live in this sort of polyglot of information where I think for young people, especially growing up, less and less and less <coughs> are you going to be 
culturally identified with a particular set of ideas because through the through the internet we're exposed to so many others so there's not going to be it's a word i like a lot fidelity there's not going to be a lot of fidelity to one particular tradition necessarily when there are so many and they seem so exotic and beguiling and so much more interesting than what you probably grew up with it took me till i was 50 uh, to begin a really what you would call a kind of a religious life. But I did have the stories for 40 years, or I had them my whole life, really. So they showed me something about the conditions. They showed me a lot. And this shows you about the conditions of living. Um, for me, Christianity showed me then how to live it. It didn't just show mm. me what life was. It showed me how to live it. But as for now... Are our stories still the binding narrative? I'd say there are. There's just more than ever. And on the with the one hand, that will feel terribly liberating. And on the other hand, it'll feel like there's so much choice, you wouldn't possibly know what to do with it. So is the problem then that we have too many of them? Or is the problem that we don't have one that we all or or much or many of us like let's say, a majority of us agree upon, which sets the framework for the other ones? I don't know. Um, I know that you we hear a lot in the media these days, they talked about a mean, they talk about a meaning-shaped hole in people's lives or a God-shaped hole. I'd say there's a myth-shaped hole. Uh, there's just something where we have a lot of stuff. Many of us are more well-off than ever. We have more... Uh, access to medical care and things we're living longer and at the same time there's a sort of deep down there's a deficit of something there's some there's some vital protein that we're just not receiving so I wouldn't want to say I would be careful about saying we all need to agree to the same story that sounds like a disaster but I think it's the difference you know uh, Nikolai between what I call growth and depth. We live in a world that celebrates exponential growth, but the the consequence of existential of, of you know of very swift growth is always a lack of depth. So we are we our knowledge is two miles wide and two inches deep. We know a little bit about everything. Mm-hmm. And one of the things about storytelling is you have to trade some growth for depth. You have to go deeper, otherwise you can't do it. Yeah, you know, I've been doing, talking about depth, I've been doing total refocusing and, and sort of a deep dive into the world of story for the last maybe four or five years. And so you're probably the 10th or the 15th interview of a kind of a story expert that that I have brought on my podcast, which was kind of a radical break with the previous 300 interviews that I did before that, who are usually tech experts and AI experts and transhumanists and so on. And the reason was because I got to that conclusion that we need a new story. Um, and um, so the, the, the second book that I'm working on right now that I've been working for for a while and that kind of pushed me into that direction is is sort of temporarily called rewriting the human story how our story determines our future 
because my concern is that you know a story, whether religious or what's whatever myth mythical story you embrace, tells us who we are, where we're coming from, and where we're going. It tells us what's possible and what's not possible, what's right and what's wrong. How are we to live our lives? What's the good life? It lays down all those images for us, or the space of possibility, if you will. And in the current story that we find ourselves captured or maybe even imprisoned, I think we can all see the ending is fatal for us. Yeah. Um, and and the only way I got to the conclusion to change that ending is if we break out of that story and come up with a new one, with a better story. Now, as you pointed out rightly, the tricky part is that that's why I'm struggling with it so much is that it cannot be a single story. It has to be a multipolar story. So it's more like a mosaic of stories. It's, it's kind of like creating the framework within which mutually exclusive and maybe even somewhat incompatible story can peacefully coexist together. That's what makes it so tricky, right? And then I, I got a number of people on my podcast to discuss this topic. And one of them that I discovered, many of them gotten to the same conclusion, but one was Jonathan Gotcho. Um, um, no, before that, even Jonah Sachs, who's, who had defined this thing called the myth gap. And he calls the myth gap the space between the realities of our moment in history and the shared stories to which we turn for explanation, meaning, and instruction for action. And so that myth gap creates that tension because the old stories that brought us thus far are no longer useful or capable to deal with the modern problems that we're dealing with. Uh, and so they're kind of falling behind, but there is no new powerful myth that's able to take on that function that's been served for thousands of years before. And I mean, even Nietzsche foresaw that in a way, in a, in a tragic manner when he declared that God is dead and, and all of that, you know, in, in a kind of a, uh, a way of, of like, uh, uh, how should I put it, in a sorry way, in a way in which like the comfort of the old world is gone and now we're kind of struggling in this vacuum where the old mythos is dead but the new one is not here and, and, and so on. So, so take this on from here and, and, and tell us, how do you perceive that kind of reasoning and, and perception that I shared with you? Well, it's depressing, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, and I think there's an element of truth in it. And But this notion that old stories cannot can no longer adequately deal with the issues of today, I would sort of, I'd question that. And I'd say there may be, there may be specific knotty issues that for some we need to rethink or more importantly reimagine but no i i don't think i think you know my whole life is meeting people countless thousands of them at this point who are profoundly involved with ancient stories in the most pressing and immediate concerns of their own private lives and their own political lives and their own careers. Uh, so the notion that it can all be kind of neatly binned uh, and some kid 
in a with a laptop in Detroit is going to tap out the latest myth. That's just not going to happen. I mean, it does sadden me. Honest, it's honestly, it saddens me because the way the stories used to come into into tribal consciousness, there was an element of what I would call the sacred about it. That. And I don't mean, when I say sacred, I'm not saying you have to sign up for a belief in God exactly, but just a sense that something outside of ordinary time was being invoked. There was a sense of auspicious, powerful occurrence. That's what a, a good storytelling, it was an event. The word Hebrew, you know, in Hebrew, dabar means word, it means event. You know, a word is an event. And so... I wonder what is going to happen when the stories are endlessly now being created almost in an AI type fashion from cutting and pasting bits from myths, bits from stories, chuck them in the machine, sees what happens. But the person themselves has done no work, has done no equivalent of four years in a tent or anything like it. That connection to the earth that I brought up in the first few minutes, that actually a myth worth hearing has a more than human intelligence in it to a tribal group. That's what they'd say. The lack of that, we end up, the myth we end up with is the Narcissan myth. We end up just looking at a reflection of ourselves in a pond telling us what we already want to hear. That's so funny because I say that technology is a magnifying mirror in my keynote speeches yeah. because it doesn't, uh, uh, it, it basically takes, t tell us who we are uh, and, and, it, and it magnifies it, it amplifies it, but it doesn't put too much of, of, of its own. Uh, so it takes the best of us, but it also takes the worst of us. Um, and so instead of trying to, to fix technology, sometimes we, which is like, trying to polish the mirror, I say we, we might as well consider the kind of image that we project and be more deliberate about that and try to fix the origin of the problems mm -hmm. rather than the reflective mirror. Yes. Um, and, and so therefore, the root of the problem is usually us. It's, it's, it's not really the, the technology. Uh, but going back to, to the mirror, uh, not to the mirror, to the stories, I totally agree with you because I share many, many of the stories about Socrates and Epictetus and Plato and the myths that Plato shared with us and so on during my keynote speeches. So there's lots of wisdom there or the stories of their own life and how they lived, how they carried themselves together. They're super powerful. But by, by, by the myths, I mean like, a, like an overarching myth which frameworks our whole civilization. So in a way that, for example, you know, the 20th century was like a clash between capitalism, communism, and, social, uh, and, and fascism. And, you know, fascism was the first story that went away. It's a grand story of how to organize a society. Then communism eventually fell apart in 89 to mid-90s in some countries. And I think what we're... And then, you know, Francis Fukuyama hurried on to proclaim the end of history because in his view, capitalism was not simply the best story we ever told, but in his view, capitalism was the best story that could ever be told. And therefore, no more history, you see, because no more progress. We have reached the pinnacle in his view, which is a naturally preposterous mm -hmm. notion. Very popular in the Department of Political Science when I was there uh, 20 years ago. Uh, 
but now I think we're seeing capitalism as a story falling apart, literally. And we are lacking this kind of a general organizational framework. The story of democracy is kind of falling apart. People are losing respect and value in democracy and turning to strong leaders to bring order into the world of chaos that they find themselves into. And so what I'm trying to to come up, and I, and I think lack of a story or embracing those story um, determines our future because it shapes the framework within which our masterpiece is going to be painted. Uh, and so I am trying to come up with a new framework, a new story that would rewrite the possibilities of the future of us as a human, especially in the context of advanced technology such as artificial intelligence, which is super powerful. The fact that we're merging with machines, the transhumanist movement is getting very powerful uh, through not only just merger with machine, but genetic manipulation and, and all those kinds of things. So this is where I think we need an overarching framework that would bring us together. Yes. And so what's your idea? Well, I am working on it. Uh, I have many ideas that I'm currently exploring and, and many options. Uh, it hasn't taken the shape uh, of a structure that I'm able to comprehensively share and, and to, to say that it's kind of coherent yet. It's, it's a struggle. So my book has three parts. The first part is called Story. I think I got that part right, uh, kind of the idea of it. So it's, it's like, what is story? How does it work? Why is it works at biological, neurological, evolutionary level? Etc. Second part is called our story, and then I go into, you know, the human story and how all of our stories came to be to to present day with us. And then the third part is called the future story, and that's the part I'm really struggling with, because I can't quite get that sort of to a coherent. It has to be on the one uh, on the one hand, it has to be multipolar and multidimensional. Uh, on the other hand, it still has to make some kind of a unity at the end of the day. And it has to be able to accommodate for even mutually exclusive stories, but in a peaceful way rather than in, in violent way and in a way which is a uh, problem-solving way. Uh, you know, so that the current stories that many of us are obsessed about are local nationalistic story stories. But the problems we have, like climate change that you mentioned are uh, global, but we don't have a global story that creates the framework that would allow for those global problems to be solved. And the nationalistic localized stories cannot solve the global problem because they're at a whole other level down from it because you need the cooperation. And if you don't have that kind of global cooperation, you can't get to a problem resolution and therefore you get to a fatal end. And so that's why I struggle with, with this. And that's kind of like my motivation. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, these are the, the very language. The very language that we're using is, is sort of not mythic. It's intelligent. It's philosophical. It's needed. But for stories to have weight, for stories to actually move the heart as well as sort of excite the mind there has to be something else going on in them this issue of we need a new story i've heard it for a long time 
Uh, and I've become very famous for saying the stories we need right now arrived perfectly on time about three and a half thousand years ago. So I do, oddly, I tell stories about the past because I think they're about the future too. I can't unpack it much more than that, but I don't see time as a straight line. Uh, and so it would be very unlikely that stories from Sumeria or philosophies from Greece or folktales from Russia weren't going to prove to be hugely important in the next hundred years. It's a form of hypnosis. It's a form of hypnosis when we think what we're going through now is so site-specific it has no connection to what human beings have been going through for hundreds and thousands of years. Carl Jung had a wonderful phrase, the lament of the dead. And he said, mm -hmm. no real story works until it has the lament of the dead in it, until it has some bones in it, until it has some grit. And the problem, the problem with just crafting a story that you came up with as opposed to a sense of a story being handed down like a myth, because a myth takes thousands of years to work properly. You can't create one overnight. Campbell would say there's nothing in your own Joseph Campbell would say that, that you you know you've got to you've got to gag on true doctrine. If something doesn't come up that you bump up against, the problem is people create myths that just are they're, they're filled with allegory, there's no mystery in them, and they're just making a point. Uh, and stories really are more mysterious, they're more animate than that. Um, but they can't be produced like a party trick at exactly the right moment. I just wonder about humans, as we're having this conversation, I'm just despairing a bit because traditionally storytellers would spend lots of time not hunched over computers, but out under trees and just out in other situations, other life worlds, as the anthropologists would call it. Uh, so you're on receive to a bigger universe than just your sort of small set of concerns. So that's the kind of thing that I would be in. Uh, it's the only thing that I could think of as a, a sane response to where we are. Yeah, and, and like you, you're you're five years older than me. Uh, like you, I grew up with sticks and stones. We had a black and white TV until I was grade eight. Um, and I played outside until, you know, midnight in the summers in the mountains of Bulgaria. And mm -hmm. my grandpa had to go look for me or shout for me from the other two blocks away and then I would come home. Uh, that was kind of, I had a very, very happy childhood. Uh, but let's see, uh, and I've heard you say before this, that we cannot come up mm -hmm. with a myth, you know, overnight. It's yeah. it's a thousand year old long project, mm -hmm. if not longer. Uh, but, but so let's see if we can unpack that. So, and, and I'm a big fan of the old stories myself, but because I, I even use them and apply them in every keynote speech of mine, uh, you know, just uh, three days ago, I did a presentation for the Canadian Actuarial Society, and I talked about Epictetus and his life uh, there for, for a very long time and what we can learn fr from him about our lives today, namely resilience and things like that. But um, 
what can you suggest perhaps can we learn from any of your favorite myths in terms of dealing with AI, for example? Well, first of all, I would say, because some people hearing this would be depressed by me saying you can't create a myth overnight. That's true, but you can create a story just to make a distinction. Stories and myths are a bit different. Uh, yeah. So, for example, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien did an incredible thing with Lord of the Rings. Now, do I regard Lord of the Rings as a myth? No, I don't, but it's very mythically inspired and it's mythic, ick, it's mythic, and it's helped countless millions of people. So I'm not trying to dissuade anybody from being imaginatively awake to the conditions of our times. Um, in terms of AI, I don't know. I need more. I need longer to think about this. I have friends who regard who've, who've taken a position where they think behind things like AI, there is a rather macabre intelligence at play that doesn't really wish human well, human beings well at all. So that's something to consider. But then my idea would be always I wrote a whole book about it called Smoke Hole where I ask a question, I say, look, I, how did a tool become a deity? That's the problem, is our religious, our spiritual, soulful sensibilities, we now serve in a different temple, most of us, and most of us, I'm looking at the temple we serve in now, which is this little glowing box in front of me. So that would be the first thing, is I would want it to go from being a temple back to a tool, uh, I don't want to just ignore it completely. That seems ridiculous. But it's got to be a force for doing good in the world, which is, I think, partially what you're getting at. But to, regard, yeah, but to regard it all as entirely bad is is foolish, you know? Yeah, and I often say that, you know, I don't worship technology, though I, mm. I love using it when it's useful, Yeah. right? Uh, but I don't worship it, uh, and that's that's a key distinction. Just like the other distinction that you made between story and a myth, mm. and that's why my kind of ambition is to create a story rather than the myth. Uh, but you know, one of the things that I thought about is is that you know, just like humans have a story about who we are, where we're coming from, and where we're going, so will AI, and so the context within which AI is given birth to or created would determine that story. So, for example, if AI is created in a commercial context, it will probably look at us as products or users. If it's created in a military context, the story of it, its story would be enemies and friends to be killed or to be saved. Uh, you know, if it's created maybe in an open sort of source uh, uh common uh, commons context, it might consider us more friendly and more kind of, of peers to, to be with. In other words, the birth, just like with people, the context in which you're born with, the blood, the, the people that gave you the first stories that you heard have a tremendously powerful amount of influence on you. The same with AI, right? So that's why that, that context is so important because if the AI comes with the story, like we came up with the story of humanism, which kind of in a way told us we are the pinnacle of evolution. We 
killed God and we replaced him. We took his place and we became the giver and the taker of life on our planet uh, with our tremendous technological powers. And we called ourselves homo sapiens, which made it was rightful and good that it was so. But what if AI takes the same story? And of course, they're not going to call it humanism. They're going to call it AIism. And of course, they would be smarter than us. So they would be the pinnacle of evolution. And if they look at the world the way we look at now, they would treat us the way we treat the apes or the, the ants or all the other animals, right? Because it's a very sort of a humanism is a very species self centered kind of self-justifying kind of a framework, right? And that's why one of the things I'm trying to change is the, the, the humanism story. Without losing the human, though, that's, that's the key point, to be a little bit less self-centric and egocentric and self-serving, but more encompassing. Just like the circle of reference always has expanded, you know, first it was like men of arm and property, then it was eventually younger men, then it was eventually women, then it was eventually people of different races and slaves. Uh, and now we're kind of expanding that circle of reference, hopefully globally to, in theory, at least the whole of our species. But I'm saying we have to go even beyond our species to other species and kind of include all sentience within the circle of, of reference, if, if you will. And that would be a a project of self-salvation in a way, because again, if AI treats us the way we treat the others now, we're doomed. Yes. Funnily enough, everything you've said in the last couple of minutes is, if you look at it mythically, the best examples of those sorts of stories, which in other words is a multiplicity of intelligences being taken seriously, those are indigenous stories. They're from outside of, they're outside of Europe. Uh, they are from Arnhem Land, they're from Australia, they're from uh, Amazonia, they're from, uh, they're from South Dakota, they're from the Inuit. There, is, there are stories within stories within stories there that are completely in tune with everything that you've just said. Yeah. Yeah, and that's one of my greatest kind of points of references or research in part three is I, I've been doing a deep dive in lots of that kind of stream of mm. research of, you know, First Nations, we call them here in Canada, or the indigenous peoples all over the world. Um, and I've I've done a deep dive in African stories, in North American stories, and so on. But going back to the topic here, because we're literally running out of time, we maybe have four or five minutes. So where do we go from here? We started with a quote from your book, Bart's Gow, about yeah. how story can heal the world. We both agree that the world needs healing. Yeah. Now, how do we do that exactly? Maybe we're struggling both with it. What, what, what do you want to propose here? Do you have any ideas as a storyteller? What's your place in that healing process? Is it just telling those old stories or is it more to it? There's always more to it. An old woman recently said to me, she said, although you're called a storyteller, she said, really, in a room when you're working, story is a cloak that you throw over people and then you do all this kind of deep surgery on them underneath the cloak. Because storytelling sounds so bland. It sounds like a child's activity, like there's nothing going on. But the wonderful thing about being a storyteller is there's no one in the world, this is it actually, uh, Nicola, no one in the world has ever said, 
if there's one thing I really hate, it's a great story. It doesn't exist. So I find myself in the most extraordinary and privileged conditions because everybody loves the story. Therefore, you're not just dealing with an antique art form. You're dealing with something that everybody is wired into if the story is compelling enough. So we need a story that brushes up against the sense of our times in a very real, dramatic sense. But for me, if if the stories we're telling don't have in them what I would call the service code, then we are doomed. And by the service code, I mean, are human beings in touch and in service for something greater than their own immediate passions or not that is the essential function of a lot of religious life is just to give you some distance from being run ragged by your own passion your own desire your own addictions so we need stories that are compelling enough and i i can't find any other word really of a spiritual dimension enough to to help us fall back in love with the world again. That's what I think is for me. That's my function. I'm something, I call myself a praise maker. I go outside every day and I look around and think, what seeks to be admired by me? What seeks to be praised by me? Can I look at a rowan tree and give it 12 secret names? Is there a person who's depressed and I need to look at them in 12 different ways and raise up their spirit? Uh, I have to st- I have to begin there right into the immediate. And so for me, the phrase I would use as we bring this to a conclusion is reverie leads to participation. Reverie leads to participation. And when I say reverie, I mean being caught in the wonder of a story. We're surrounded by dazzlement these days, but wonder real wonder when you come out and go fuck i feel changed in some way i feel changed by what's what's just happened to me that causes us to make different better decisions in our life and then in some tiny way we do contribute to the great malaise of our moment yeah wow martin where can people find more about you and your work go to martin shaw dr martin shaw.com Doc, the doctor is important because there's an actor of the same name. So you want to go drmartinshaw.com. I have a sub stack, which is a, a weekly newsletter. Uh, and that's where all my really fresh stuff is coming out of. It's called House of Beasts and Vines. The link is on my website. My school is on the website. You just click on it there. Everything that I'm up to is easily accessible from that website. So what's the final parting message that you want to send us away with? Is it, is it a story? Is it, is it like a single message? Uh, how do we wrap out our conversation, perhaps in a positive, upbeat yeah. way? Well, I would, I would say, say this, Nicola. Um, my, my message would be take courage. It's very easy when you painted about 10 minutes ago an accurate but really terrifying picture of how AI could then effectively take, we could be being sort of eaten from the inside by, you know, artificial intelligence. That's deeply distressing to, you know, that almost qualifies as a traumatic event, even hearing about it. So <laughs> remember your agency as human beings. Remember the stuff that lives in you that's nothing to do with computer screens. 
spend time offline. That would be my advice. Pay attention to your dreams. Learn a story by heart. Uh, that you know, get a Grimm's fairy tales out. Get some philosophy out. Get get the Odyssey out. Come see me. Go listen to your podcast. But in some way, take yourself seriously enough because most of us have a tremendously low sense of self esteem. You could be earning a million pounds a year, but you still deep down inside you feel wretched. Forget all of that. Life is short. Life is short. Be a story maker for your times. Wow, be a story maker of your times. And I totally accept with you that we have agency, which is in a way one reason that kind of uh uh problem with AI that I described coming up with the story of AIism was one of several reasons why I became vegan about eight years ago. Yeah. Uh to to set an example, not that the AIs would necessarily follow it, but set an example of us, our species, respecting other species and hope that the AIs would treat us the same way. Because if they treat us the way we as a species have treated the world and all the other species right now uh, and, and kill them by the billions for fun, for sport, not just for food uh, or just because we don't care, you know, we are doomed. And, and that's where I, I took on my agency and embraced it um and and i i would pile up and i've been piling up on top of that what you just said about being a becoming your own storyteller uh and taking on that further agency further because i think we do tell a story with the way we live our lives too mm -hmm. with what yeah. we do not just with the, the oral tradition yeah, but yeah, with yeah. our actions yeah i agree, I agree. well dr martin Shaw. Thank you so very much for taking the time to be with us. I really appreciate your time. Thank you.